Hey everyone, Beyond the Baseline is brought to you by Fresh Books for Freelancers and Small Business Owners, and they are often one and the same. FreshBook takes the pain out of accounting. Have a question about the service? A real live human being, yes, a real live human will answer every call in about three rings. Get your 30-day free trial by going to freshbooks.com backslash beyond and entering the code beyond. Again, freshbooks.com slash beyond, enter the code beyond. One of his greatest legacies, it will be setting the bar that you don't get a pass. And look, I played. I know how tough it was to be an average pro and how much it took out of you. That you really need to keep all your physical and emotional reserves to yourself. And Roger showed that that wasn't the case. And I believe that he reset the conversation as a result. But I, it's, it sounds ridiculous. But I, I truly believe that if the, the human world needed to be restarted from scratch, that he would be a very viable candidate. Hey everyone, John Wertheim here. It is this week's Sports Illustrated Tennis Podcast. This week's guest is a former player, a broadcaster, an ATP board member, a coach of a top player, and a tennis media creator, as well as a tennis channel broadcaster. Justin Gimmelstop is only one person, believe it or not, and the fact that he has so many jobs, which sometimes can be at odds with each other, will form a bit of our conversation. Justin and I, full disclosure, our colleagues, longtime friends, we talk offline often about roles in tennis and how to improve tennis and whether or not we should be as concerned with conflicts as some of us, i.e. me, tend to think. And to his great credit, we talk about that openly on the podcast. He also talks about his relationship with Roger Federer on coaching a player on one of the more regrettable moments of his career. Good conversation. And I really encourage you to listen. It was good of him to take the time and also talk so candidly. Let's bring him in now. We don't know where he is, but he's calling us from his cell. Justin Gimmelstab, how are you? I'm great. Just my normal weekday. Drop off my son yeah. at school. I've already spilled coffee in my car. Just normal daddy daycare day. You get coffee in the car, you drop off your son, and now you got a podcast, and it's not even 9 o'clock L.A. time. Where have you been? Uh, your Your travels are always a subject in themselves. Where have you been lately? Yeah, they've been significant. Post-Melbourne, um, post which was only two weeks ago. Where have you been? Post-Melbourne. Let's see. I was in the studio in L.A. for Tennis Channel. You know, those hours are always intense. Um, and I just got back from Rio. I was with uh, John there. He had a rough South America trip, to say the least. Had match points in both weeks in Buenos Aires and Rio. Lost 10-8 in the third set tie break just the other day. Uh, got some ATP work done. Got some ATP Uncovered work done. And zipped on a flight and had a very intense 36-hour trip to Rio. Got a, Did a nice helicopter ride. Got to see the Christ the Redeemer. Got to see the, all the plans for the Olympics and Olympic tennis, which looked fabulous, by the way. Uh, unlike at the London Games, the tennis is going to be right in the center of the action, right in the middle of the Olympic Village, right next to the... Uh, broadcast center, so I think it'll be a, a different vibe than the tennis in London. Um, so yeah, so Rio now back to LA, and I'm going to go train with John next week before he goes to the Davis Cup in Australia, and I'll be back in the studio calling the Davis Cup, and then I'll hopefully be with you in Indian Wells. You'll be with me in Indian Wells. You have Sky on your boarding pass. You're allowed early boarding. Uh, I have a, a lot of miles. <laughs> a lot of miles. Yeah. 
It's, it's not all it's cracked up to be. So um, let, let's let's kind of divide this into your various duties. So let, let, let's start ATP-wise. Where, where is men's tennis right now? I mean, I mean, I'm might be biased. But yeah, of course you're biased. No, we're of course you're biased, but that's all right. <laughs> I'm biased on everything, but I, I mean, I. It seems like the marketplace is kind of supports my bias. Is that seems like men's tennis and tennis in general is incredibly healthy. Um, obviously, you have these iconic stars with Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, and Murray uh, that just are some of the greatest players of all time. You have a next wave of players that are very popular, like Stan Wawrinka and Burdick and Sanga. Um, and then you have a, a new generation that has really been poking through and has made some excellent strides even just in 2016. When you look at even last week in our center court coverage on Tennis Channel, we had Taylor Fritz getting to the finals in Memphis. You had Zarev getting, uh, playing very well in Rotterdam the week before. Zarev got to the quarterfinals in Montpellier. Uh, you have George playing well. You have Chung playing well. Um, but for American tennis, what Taylor Fritz has done since losing in the first qualities of the U.S. Open, winning the U.S. Open Junior, three challengers in the fall, winning a challenger to start this year, then getting to the finals in Memphis. I mean, with, with pretty match effort. Five-set loss to Jack Sock in Australia. I mean, this kid is the total package. Um, so in terms of – there are a lot of exciting storylines. I mean – Lots of great new sponsors with the HV World Tours. Just signed Emirates as the global sponsor. Peugeot as a new sponsor. Emphasis as a data uh, partner. I mean, it seems like there's some incredible stuff going on in, in on the HV World Tour and, and on the WTA as well. So it's a uh, it's a great time to be involved in the sport. One more win. No, I don't, you in, tell me. Am I biased? I no, mean, you're, yeah, you're, of course you're biased. So so let's. Um, I mean, I think you know. I think a lot of your points are well taken. I mean, Taylor, Taylor Fritz was one match away from top 100 already. Um, and, you know, any anyone that's seen him, this isn't just sort of hype the young American. I mean, pe- people that are neutral, people that are not American, you, you see him play and you say, this this guy, this guy's a future star. Um, all right, let, let's, let's go down the list. I mean, one thing I worry about is how much of this sort of, uh, call it a refractory period, do we have after Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, Murray? I mean... The the youngest player to have won a Masters, this is my stat of the year so far, the youngest player to have won a Masters Series event is Novak Djokovic. I mean, there are two guys younger than him that have won a major. One is Chilich, who's not in the top 10, and the other is Del Potro, who's obviously had injury problems. I mean, it does seem to me that there inevitably will be a pretty serious void once these big four are no longer the big four. Agree or disagree? Well... I respect your stance on it, and it obviously makes intellectual sense. It just seems there's also one thing you have to understand is that the the big tournaments, I mean, the major tournaments, the Masters 1000 events, the winners of those tournaments become the story. So, yes, the top players have been incredibly stingy. I mean, there should be an episode of Hoarders, how, how much they <laughs> win and how much they keep away from the nice. rest of the talent. I mean, in another era, David Ferrer, Tomas Burdick, Sanga, some of these guys probably would be major champions. If you look at in past history where you have Rafter had two, Carlos Moya had one, you know, Guga had three, you have, you know, Kifelnikov had a couple, you have Krychek had one, Goran had one. You know, that probably would have happened if the top group wasn't just so incredible but if they're not there the players that win the slams and win the masters 1000 are going to be stars so yes is there going to be a void 
possibly, but if you look at the course of history, that void is always filled, and that next generation of those next players become the stars and they become the story. Um, you know, there was a little gap after Sampras, and then Leighton Hewitt became a huge star, and that was an amazing story. I just generally think that the talent will, will find its way to the top, and the stories um, will be made by virtue of the people that are successful. It's like the, kind of like the winners of the wars write the history books, and that's kind of the way I look at it. And also, I've always been bullish, and I feel like it's been validated a bit that Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, Murray, all these guys aren't going anywhere. And players are playing a lot later. They're able to be successful and stay healthy a lot longer. They understand their bodies more. They manage their schedules better. Um, and, you know, I was, always, I was always a buyer in terms of when would Roger retire. I was always a buyer in when will Rafa retire. Um, and now Djokovic seems like he's just getting better in his late 20s. So, uh, once again, maybe it's because... I I need to be, but I truly I'm not I'm not overly concerned. I'm not saying there aren't challenges down the road when these iconic stars. Hopefully, they all don't leave the game at the same time. But I believe that things will recalibrate, and I believe that the next generation will be right there in order to step up. Yeah, no, I, you know history supports that in other sports too, right? I mean, the, the NBA may have had a, a post Jordan period, but. LeBron James comes along, and that Kobe Bryant's pretty good. I mean, there there are someone will still win the trophies. You know, they're not going to stop giving out a uh, a Wimbledon trophy just because Roger Federer and, and Novak Djokovic aren't playing anymore. You think uh, five, six, eight years from now, we're, we're going to fill these big stadiums watching Rublev against Zverev? Um, I do. Um, I think it, it could be Rublev against Zverev, but I mean, what if it's Zverev against Taylor Fritz? I mean, you have two huge markets. I mean, you have a, a potential German superstar, and that guy is as much of a lock as any young talent there's, we've seen for a while. I mean, the kid hit, hits the ball a ton off both sides, beautiful serve, great attitude, unbelievable work ethic. I mean, could be a... You know, you, you know they could, played in the qual- in the last round of qualities in Australia. No, he played his brother. He played the brother, yeah, yeah, the lefty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lefty. yeah. yeah and Taylor was down 4-0 in, in the third and beat him. But you have Zarev, who could be you know, filming commercials for, or could be on the front cover of GQ. And then you have an American star that's 18 that, you know, could be the next great rivalry. And that guy could be, Taylor Fritz could be starring in Hollywood movies. I mean, it's just, and you have Chorich who represents, you know, Europe. And he already played uh, Zarev once in Cincinnati last summer and it was seven, six and a third. And it was a epic battle for two young teenagers. So and you have Chung representing Asia. I mean, there, there's, I just think there's a lot of great storylines, a lot of great young talent, and yeah, maybe I'm for once in my life, maybe I'm um, I'm optimistic or oh, uh, cautiously optimistic. But um, I I believe that there will be you know, there might be a recalibration period, but I, I believe the sport will will stay healthy and strong for a long time. There are always new stars coming along. So so go to the other extreme. People say, hey, you're you're in tennis. Um, I don't know if you get this as often as I do. What's Roger Federer really like? I suspect you, you go you go into a cocktail party and people hear you're in tennis. Uh, you what, what do you tell them? Yeah, this is a tough one because you start becoming almost like a, borders on hyperbole or unbelievable to actually tell people. Oh, that you, you, you have a relationship he, with him that I, that I think is no, I know. I have this, but, when you, but when you describe him, I'm sure when you describe him and people, you know, 
obviously his reputation precedes himself. He's one of the most appreciated people in the world, not just athletes. And then when you go and tell people that he's even better in person and he spends 35 minutes in the locker room after he beats Murray in the semifinals of Cincy and he plays Djokovic in the final the next day and his four kids are there and you spend 35 minutes with him talking about ATP matters, your personal life, you know, your son, my, you know, my child, and, you know, and he's completely engaged, completely uh, focused on, on the topic at hand. Um, I mean, he's just, I think he's just unique. I think one of the greatest things that he will have done for the sport besides what he accomplished on court, is to set the bar and the tone that you could be the best tennis player possibly of all time, most accomplished for sure of all time, and still be humane and sensitive and generous with your time. And for a while, it, it, it seemed like, and it's understandable because we know how cutthroat tennis is, that you almost had to be, you know, close yourself off to distractions in order to be a huge star because of how challenging it was and how physical it was and how emotional it was. But then Farah comes along and shows you that you could be one of the most magnanimous people on the planet and still be a huge star. And that kind of set the bar for the next group. So nobody, and I really believe he set the tone for how to conduct yourself on and off the court for generations to come. So, I mean, I have a zillion anecdotes of, Give it, come on, give us a, give us some. That's what we, we want specifics. I, I remember you t- tell the story. You, you've told me this before about how uh, he's like practicing for a Grand Slam semifinal, and he's he's literally beginning his practice by signing autographs. I'll tell you a better one. Oh, you could I'll bring Tennis Channel into it, so you you understand how the TV business works now. You know how coveted those star interviews are late in tournaments, and how tough. You know, Jan Arianas and now Malka, you know, run around trying to make sure that we get the we have the talent in place so we could just ask them a couple questions and and feed it into our coverage. So, um, it was a bunch of years ago now at the French when Roger, I believe he was down two sets to one against Del Potro. I think it was the year he won it at the French. This was a while ago. No, I'm aging yet. myself. Um, and a big interview fell through. Um, one of the big stars fell through and Roger had an off day. Um, and, um, we needed a, a big interview to, to fill a gap on one of our live shows. So tennis channel sent me out to try and find, find one. And Roger was doing a ton of press, but he'd already done tennis channel. So he, he, he wasn't obligated to do it again. And I ran into him in the press room, uh, sorry, no, in the, in that area going up to all the studios in the, in the compound area in at the French Open, and you know Nicole Arzani, who looks after him and is the head of communications for the ATP, kind of looks so, at me, and I could tell what that look meant. That look meant stay away, <laughs> don't even try. I mean that that look. Every, every PR person I, has that, so yeah. Exactly, I'm used to getting that look from people for all different reasons, but I got that look from Nicole, who's a, really a, a incredibly warm and accommodating guy. So I knew that it was hands-off territory. So, and then you know, Rodri was flanked by all of his handlers and everyone so he was pretty well cocooned so roger just senses has this sense that you know i i was in a a state of stress which isn't that big of a stretch since i generally am um and he said justin what's going on how's everything going and then i get the look from everyone and i said nicole he asked me so i told him told him what happened he goes i'll take care of it don't worry meet me at court 18, I'm practicing from whatever, 1 to 3, uh, 1 to one to one to 2.30, um, I'll do the interview after that. So I run over, and the story gets way better. If it just ended there, 
it would be incredible because I believe this was right before he was going to play maybe the semis of the French. So this this, is, this is a Grand Slam he's never won before. This is, I mean, let's yeah. let's sort of set this up. And Nadal had lost, and this is a big exactly. opportunity for him. And he'd just been down two sets to one against Del Potro, and you know, physical five set match. So if the story just ended there, it would have been incredible. So then I I go out to the court. The place is packed. Obviously, John, you know what it's like. A, a, a Federer practice session at a Grand Slam is better attended than a lot of matches. Sure. And I get on the court, and Roger uh, is about to start hitting, but he, he hadn't started. He was just warming up, stretching. I had my camera crew come out there. And he turns to me, and he goes, hey, did you just want to do the interview before, not after? That way you don't have to wait around the whole time? <laughs> I, was like, <laughs> I was like, yeah, that would probably be better for me. I don't know if it's better for you, but okay, sure. He's like, okay, let's, let's do the interview now. So, okay, great. So we do the interview, and you know Roger, you, you – Roger's the type of guy we, we were you, taught. You can't not have we were, a bad interview with him. Right, exactly. But this is the point. is We were taught and how to ask a good question to hopefully get a good answer. With Roger, if you ask a bad question, you get a good answer. If you ask a good you, question, you get a great answer. It saves I mean, you like, like you a said, producer, I always say. It, it, yeah, it's impossible to, to – It's. I mean, I shouldn't say impossible, but it's pretty hard to do a bad interview with him. He's that good. So – we do the interview. He knocks it every single one of them out of the park. Always, you know, gives more, gives insight, just gives, lets you in. And then he's about, so my, my crew's there getting some B-roll. And just out of habit, I just went to the sound guy and the and the, the camera guy. I just said, can you just check it to make sure it came through okay? So Roger just starts hitting, and I'm just kind of, they're getting some B-roll, and I'm just kind of hanging around. And I could see the sound guy, like, Ope turned pale, like he he lost all color in his face. And I just walked over to him and I said, oh, what's the problem? Because I made a mistake with the mic. So once again, Roger starts hitting, and out of nowhere, he just senses that something's wrong. And he turns around to me as I my stress was probably oozing out of me into him on the practice courts. And he goes, Justin, is everything okay? And I go, well, actually... Not really. He goes, what happened? I said, well, I think there's an issue with the mic and the sound guy. He goes, no problem. Let's do it again. Does the whole interview again. <laughs> this, this is two days interview. before playing in the, the latter rounds of a Grand Slam, too. We should, we should Does have. the whole interview again. So we all have these stories, I, right? So, so I mean, this is like you're, you're telling me this, and I'm, and I'm sort of you know impressed by how generous he is, but this is not shocking. I mean, we all have stories like this. So, when so, I went to go see him, when I went to, when I, one time I went to go see him in Dubai a couple of days before Christmas to go over some ATP stuff. This was when Roger was the president of the Player Council, which he was for six years, and he moved the margins more for the players and the tour than any player ever has by far. I just He asked me for my flight information. I figured he was going to organize a car. He goes there himself. So, I mean, he's just, he's just that guy. All right, so, so how much of this is Roger Federer? How much of this is just... You know, he, he was raised right, and he never flipped and became that athlete. And I also wonder, at the same time, how much of this is that other athletes get a pass? And you want to say, if this guy can be the top of his sport and still have this, this measure of common courtesy, are, are we not, uh, should we not be expecting more of other athletes? Well, that was my point previously. That's what I said. That's why I think one of his greatest legacies it will be setting the bar that you don't get a pass. 
And I really believe that's been the case for tennis. I mean, not that these other players that came after him weren't great people as well, but I actually really believe that there's a period of time there, and I don't want to name names, but certain tennis players, and look, I played. I know how tough it was to be an average pro and how much it took out of you, that you really needed to keep all your physical and emotional reserves to yourself. And Roger showed that that wasn't the case, and I believe that he reset the conversation as a result. Now, how he is the person he is, I think it, it's a confluence of events of genetics and upbringing and environment and his parents and his wife and the people around him and, and him. Um, but I, it's, it sounds ridiculous, but I, I truly believe that if, if the, the human world needed to be restarted from scratch, that he would be a very viable candidate to be the male oh, figure God. in that process. <laughs> That's that's the movie blurb right there. Um, how much of this do you think he actively takes pleasure in? And this is part of something, you know, that's part of his identity. And how much of it do you think he's just like, I'm just I'm just being me. What's the big deal? I mean, how, how much effort is this and how much of this is something that he rightfully well, takes a certain amount conscious. of pride I think in? He's how, very, yeah, I think how, he's how very conscious? conscious. That's, that's exactly I think he's very conscious of 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 things. I think he's very conscious of his actions. I'll give you another example. One, I remember one year before the Australian open, I think it was the quarterfinals. I was sitting with him in the restaurant just minutes before he was going to play. And you know, that's generally taboo with players, but he invited me over and we were just talking and he has a much more relaxed pre-match routine than most. And there was a, a handicapped child in a wheelchair, um, that was in the side of the restaurant and, uh, on the loudspeakers called Roger Federer, Roger Federer, you know, report to, Rod Laver Arena, blah, blah. So without any fanfare or any, any attention, he went, he grabbed, his, he grabbed his stuff, went to go walk out of the lunchroom and just quickly ducked and made a quick left and just knelt down, said hello to the kid, shook his hand, signed something, and then went to go play his match, the quarterfinals of, of a major championship. So I think he's conscious of the impact that he could have, but I also think he doesn't have the certain emotional, visceral, antagonistic reaction to things that others do. I mean, he generally enjoys the travel. He generally enjoys some chaos that might drive other people uh, loony. He, he he enjoys going to new restaurants. He enjoys going to big dinners. He doesn't mind being around people. He doesn't mind being close proximity to people. doesn't mean he's, he's far from perfect. It doesn't mean he doesn't snap occasionally or it doesn't get the best of them. I, I always use this with other athletes. And when you hear that the starting pitcher won't talk to any of his teammates on the day he's supposed to pitch. And when you see these, you know, the boxers and combat sport athletes that are in this cocoon for a week before the fight. And then you see Roger Federer walk to the court and sign the autograph of the security guard right before he's supposed to play a match. It makes you sort of recalibrate. Um, all right. Good stories. All right. Hold that thought, Justin. Let's pay some bills as podcasters. We appreciate the value of your time. You commit time to listen. Sometimes you can jack that time up to one and a half speed. That's fine. We all do it. If you're a freelancer or a small business owner, stop wasting your time hunched over your accounts. Let FreshBooks do the heavy lifting so you can get out and actually grow your business. For a better way to manage your books, make tax season easy, try FreshBooks. It's a cloud accounting software designed exclusively for service-based small business owners. It's the personal accountant you've always needed right there in your pocket. It's a small accountant. Right now, FreshBooks is offering my listeners 30 days of unrestricted use, totally free. You don't even need a credit card to sign up. To get this 30-day free trial, go to freshbooks.com slash beyond. Enter the code beyond in the how you heard about us section. That's freshbooks.com slash beyond. Enter the promo code beyond. 
and you will have 30 days of unrestricted use, totally free. That is making good use of your time. So, so um, do you, should we reprise some of the arguments we have off camera that we uh, sure. when we talk about tennis? Sure. So we had this match-fixing scandal. And one of my first reactions is like, this is a great example of how the sports gets bitten by conflicts of interest. Um, you you have a different take on this. I mean, I, I think the sport is really held back by the double dipping and the triple dipping and the management agencies that also own events. And mm-hmm. you you have a slightly different take. Where 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 are you in all this? And I'm I'm also kind of curious, specific to this match fixing, which I I think was. Yeah, I mean, I I don't want to diminish it, and I don't want to poo-poo it, and I think that it's an issue tennis needs to address, but I also think that the way it was portrayed in mass media is greatly out of proportion uh, with, well, the, rea- think, with yeah. the reality. Well, let's just deal with, let's deal with the match-fixing first. I think that the they did the reporters involved did an incredibly unprofessional um, and disservice, and a um, I think they were irresponsible in terms of the way they handled it. Um, Are you, the, the BBC BuzzFeed or the tennis media? No, the, the people that initiated it, the BBC BuzzFeed. Okay. I mean, okay. the, the the initiators of the story, because um, it was ripe with allegations and innuendo and in terms of hard facts that they felt they might have or insinuated they had but weren't willing to fully uh, document because of fear of litigation. Or My point, if you have a, I, I thought, and I'm not – a journalist. This is more up your. You are a journalist. Come on, you're a journalist. Well, that's part of the next conversation. I, I don't necessarily consider myself a journalist, but that's we could go down that route after. But I thought that if you you put work you put into work into a story, you believe in a story, you try and break a story, that you have to stand by your story and stand by the facts and stand by the names and stand by the information. And it seemed to me that they wanted to almost titillate the viewers with possibilities and fear and innuendo but then when it came time to actually really naming names or sources or not sources sorry names or or putting it all out there that they felt vulnerable because they didn't really believe in their information and i thought they casted casted a huge dark shadow around the sport when i just don't believe it's to be the case now i think we discussed the stats there was 120,000 matches that could be bet on in a year with 65 different bets on each match, right? I mean, so do the math. Um, I'm not, I'm not Pollyanna. I'm going to say there hasn't been one scenario that could possibly have been compromised. All I know is the matches that we were broadcasting in the Australian Open at that level with the top guys, with the names that you know and recognize, that the sport is pure. And I would put my reputation on that, um, and I believe that wholeheartedly. Um, but. I think positive things will come out of this. I think we'll put more money into it. We set up an independent review. Um, and I, I believe that, I don't believe conflict was an issue with well, the gambling because it was always, I mean, it was always at an outside independent process. But, but my, you know, this, this tennis integrity unit was still being funded by tours. This independent review that's being set up is being headed by a guy who's already represented Mariano Puerta, generally regarded as someone who's run afoul of anti-doping. I mean, it, it just seems to me that a lot of this kind of everyone wearing multiple hats and, and everybody sort of serving multiple masters really does a disservice to the growth of the sport. Okay. Well, I, I just want to kind of 
just kind of compartmentalize them. That, that, that's my view on, on the, the gambling. My view okay. on the gambling is that I believe it was irresponsible reporting. I, I don't think it's an epidemic. I think that there's a lot of challenges considering the amount of matches and the low level of matches. I feel like at the lowest, lowest levels where temptation is at its highest, the futures and the challengers, and that there's still the same level of gambling down there as there are you know, with much less visibility and much less um, yeah, that's, accountability that's a good point. Yeah, good point. than there is at, than there is at the top. My my view is, for better or worse, I spend most of my time around the biggest events, and I believe that the sport is incredibly pure there, and especially at the top top. Um, but more resources and and more information and, and more independent reviews will be done, and and I believe that's that's a positive overall for the sport. So sometimes good things come from bad things, and I believe this will be the case. In terms of overall conflict, I mean this is a long time debate in in tennis and you know it's i and i'm as guilty of it if it was something wrong with it as anyone my whole view has always been about disclosure and um but you know i i believe everyone deserves their opinion on it i've, I've spoken about this uh, chris cleary has been very outspoken about it um and i respect his opinion sometimes you just i've learned as you know it has, doesn't come easy to me but sometimes you just have to agree to disagree. And, you know, so the same newspaper that sometimes, or the same people that sometimes criticize what I do, then you were there in Australia. You saw the New York Times ran an article on, on all the different jobs I have and how, you know, some of the synergies do have value. But I, maybe I believe that because it benefits me. I'm not, I'm not that naive to say that, I'm not above saying that I rationalize things because it benefits me. I just, I truly believe it. I truly believe that I bring value to all the different entities that I work for, and that the second I didn't, it would be a much bigger problem. Um, so, you know, yeah, I mean, how how organic? Or let's let's leave you out of this because I, I mean, again, and I, I respect this. I mean, you you and I have had for years and yeah. years have had back and forth on this. Do you think the the sport just is what it is? I mean, are we ever going to get to the point where we say, you know what? No, you cannot agitate to reduce the purses of the events you own while you're representing players. I mean, do you think we're going to get to the point where we say, no, you cannot have events and get all sorts of fees when you buy and sell those events and also serve on the board of the tour? I mean, it, it just, and how much of this do you just say, look, this is structural, this is organic, these are the rules of engagement, and how much do you think could materially be changed to avoid some of this? Well, uh, yeah, I... I... Uh, it would have to be so much change uh, that it'd be hard for me to envision. I mean, where do you, so where do you that's where do you draw the line? I, I mean, mean, I think it's, it's pretty pretty. I think plenty plenty of businesses, whether it's law firms and whether it's conflicting yourself out when you were a management consultant. I, mean, I think there are all, all banks. There are, there are all sorts of rules that are established so to avoid do, do conflicts really, of do, interest. Do, do we really do we really want to go into the banks? I mean, there, what did it take for the bank? I mean, do we really want to go into the banking world. I mean, that, no, that's there, not there my is world. A, there, there is a glass steagall I mean, there, there are you know which. There, there are policies that tennis seems to have none of for avoiding conflict of interest. The NBA, Jay Z sells his share of the Barclays Center, not even of uh, of the Nets. And there are all sorts of rules about who can buy that tiny percent share in a building because the NBA has serious conflict of interest policies. I mean, do you, do you think tennis is just too far down the road, or do you think there's some way we could actually try and legislate some of this? I, I don't believe it's impossible, but just things are so intertwined. I mean, there are certain rules, for example, on the player side, and I find this to be incongruent, 
and make that a record. This is the first incongruent <laughs> word time I use incongruent in uh, in the podcast, which generally is about every other word out of my mouth. So, is for a player bo- player board reps can't have interest in tournaments, but conversely, tournament members tons of interest in players. So that's a bit that seems incongruent to me. I mean, you have or take Steve Simon for example, who's now the president of the WTA and incredibly well respected. He's a total gentleman. It's tough to find a bigger gentleman in the sport. But he was he's been a board member for a long time. He's been the tournament director of Indian Wells. On their board you have agents, you have you know you have agents from all companies, Octagon, IMG, you know, then he segues into becoming the president of the WTA, which is you know, a board member that theoretically decides who becomes the president of the, uh, the WTA. I have no problem with any of that because at the end of it I believe Steve Simon is the best person for the job and will do an excellent job. So for me, maybe it's because I grew up in a one of the few – my life has been spent in one of the few meritocracies in the world where you actually compete and have a chance to succeed. But I believe if the best people are being put in the right situations as a result, then – once again, maybe that's my rationalization. But for example, like the Steve Simon situation, I feel like he's going to do an unbelievable job for the WTA. So whatever the process was or how other other people view it, you know, I believe that there's a means to the end. Um, in terms of what I do, in terms of representing the players, uh, why well, still now I coach a player, um, I broadcast for Tennis Channel, I produce content for, for the ATP and other people. I, I don't, I see that, I'm bringing value to each one of those jobs individually and value possibly that is disproportionate with maybe someone else could bring, even if they, they, if they didn't have those, the conflicts or the, or the so many things going on. So I don't know. I think generally people end up in, in the places where they've put themselves or work to put themselves in a position to be successful. And that's how I, that's how I rationalize it. I would, all right. Well, we're, we're not going to solve this. I, I, I think you raise an interesting point, which is tennis is a great meritocracy, right? You're not depending on the GM to get you more minutes, and you're not depending on teammates, and you don't have to be in the right system. You don't have to get along with the coach. You're out there, and if you win, you move up, and you get points, and if you lose, you don't. And yet the whole game is so in, – in, I don't want to say it's rigged, but in, in my mind the whole structure is so flawed that it's the sport overall, but it's also the athletes sometimes that really get – Hurt for all these conflicts. All right, let's let's. Uh, let's... So, how are the athletes getting? How are the athletes getting adversely affected? Uh, w- w- one example among many, I would say that when your management group also owns events and is agitating for less prize money, right. that's that's problematic to me. But that's why you have to have a strong player advocate to make sure that that's that's being offset. And if you look to see how that has gone down in the past seven eight years, I believe prize money is finally calibrated to a scale that's actually fair. So that's, I, I, I agree that there are challenges in place. That's why you need to have the right people in place to offset it. That's, I guess that's my, my view on it. All right. Let's let I want to move on, but I want, let's, let's keep going on that one though, because prize money has jumped astronomically. I mean, by, by any measure in the, the last five, six years, um, you have been a board member during that time. Is, is this uh is prize money finding its market or were the payers just severely, underpaid for so many years the, previously. I mean, the, literally, these purses the have, have doubled. Was, the talent was incredibly underpaid. No, nothing dramatic. The, the math hasn't changed. These broadcast rights haven't changed no, the equation. No, they have changed. No, 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 all that stuff is true. No, no but look, look at the price of 
both sides. The talent was being incredibly overpaid, especially at the top, and especially at the biggest events. Wait, wait, that o- is overpaid or underpaid? Underpaid. Sorry. Underpaid. Yeah. Talent was incredibly underpaid, especially at the biggest events, and still, I still believe they are. But the, but well, also, it's a new world in terms of content. Content and sports content during this period of time has become more and more valuable. But but you and think you tennis at, is seeing that? I mean, you you think the the growth in live programming that, that costs money. I'm just saying. I know, the, saying, t- what, I know what, the TV deals. There, there I, was I, a I, huge market distortion where the Wimbledon winner is literally making three times what he and she made, you know, ten years ago. Is that yeah. because the market has changed, or is that because for years and years talent was being underpaid? In that, it's in that it's both, because the t- the money was there before, and the talent was being severely underpaid, and now there's more money there and. More and they're getting paid more relative to their value, but they're still. I mean, at the biggest events, the majors and the thousands, there's no doubt that for a long time the players were getting severely underpaid. But now, when you combine the fact that they were so severely underpaid and how valuable sports content is, it's a perfect storm. So, you're you're, you're talking about from a from a media rights. Just to clarify, yeah. you're talking. Um, my friend Richard Deitch has an excellent SI Media podcast. We listen to it at Tennis Channel, and you should listen to it as well. This week's guest is Holly Rowe. If you've been following sports media, you know a bit about what Holly Rowe's been going through. This is one of the more highly regarded figures in sports media. She's facing a challenge. She talks about it with Richard on this week's SI Media podcast. Find it on iTunes, Stitcher, or at si.com backslash podcasts. All right, let's uh, let's move on. Let's let's talk broadcast side. Um, g- give me a relatively short answer on this, but I'm I'm curious about your process. And pe- people, you know, you you say you work in in TV, and I always feel like there's there's a fair amount of curiosity when when you go to call a match for Tennis Channel. T- tell us your process. I mean, what, what's your preparation? How early in? Ad- I mean, I know the answer to this, but how early in advance do you find out what court you're being assigned to, and what's what's it like? You you don't talk. Well, the ball's in play, but you I mean, just sort of go through, your, go through your process of calling a tennis match when you broadcast for Tennis Channel. Well, generally, we get our schedule the night before. Um, so you do a little research, do a little, do a little recon on the matches, try and get a feel for... I mean, for me, everyone broadcasts differently. For me, it's about the patterns, a little bit more the, the technical and the tactical. Um, envision the matchup, do your homework, see what the head-to-heads are, see where they've played. See how the what form the players are in. Envision, try to envision what patterns will will be out there. Different ways to describe them. That's one of the challenges in tennis broadcasting, I believe, because generally you see this similar pattern revealing itself. So to try and find different ways of describing it. Right. Um, and then um, so go through that. Just take down a couple notes, a couple talking points for each match, um, and you just familiarize yourself with some relevant pertinent information on both players and their camps and their form. And then interviews are completely different. As you know, I do a few different roles at Tennis Channel, whether it's sometimes I'm a host, sometimes I'm an analyst, sometimes I'm just an interview. Sometimes I just do the interviews. For interviews, it's generally having enough, a first question and a last question to get in and out, and then being able to have enough topics to ask a question that it's it's abstract or flexible enough that I could listen to the answer and see if there's a good follow-up question to the question. Cause nobody likes to do an interview where you're basically the interviewer is not listening to the interviewee and they're just going to the next question automatically afterwards. So, um, so 
write, you know, once again, do a little homework, have a couple bullet points, you know, know how I'm going to get into the, into the interview and out of the interview, and then, you know, have a couple of, of topics I could possibly delve into in the middle if there's time, or because, as you know, live television is a, is a, is an enigma, and it's sometimes, sometimes you have more, sometimes you need to stretch it, sometimes you need to cut it. Um, the, so, the, the risk analysis yeah. of live versus tape really changes. That's my experience. Yeah, tape is tape is is like uh, you're taking an open book test. Yeah, exactly. Right, right. Well, or you know, hey, you didn't like that answer. Let's start again. When you're sitting there and the player comes off the court and you've got three questions and you don't know if they're going to be in a good mood to talk or a bad mood or yeah. short answers or long answers or producers in your ear, it's um, yeah, it's it, it takes some time to get used to. Yeah. Let me ask you another. I don't know if you and I have ever talked about this, but um, you know, may, maybe the the psychic statute of limitations has lapsed and maybe it hasn't, but it was, it was about eight years ago that you had a, uh, a, a regrettable interview that, that, you know, I think we can now say for, for a time anyway, may, maybe even, maybe it imperiled your career. Um, you know, I, I know it was a dicey period and you, you overcame that obviously. When, when you look back on that whole experience now at the stage you are, I mean, what is, is it, do you feel like you were set up? Or are you angry at yourself? I mean, what, what what sort of are your takeaways eight years after that incident? Tremendous regret. You're, you're okay. Um, I'm asking. You're okay. I'm asking you this. Yeah, of course. No, it's it, it's part of my history, and it deserves to be asked. Um, it'll always be a part of my history. It's my reaction is my emotions that come up even hearing about it. I mean, it makes me physically ill. Um, Disappointment, regret, uh, embarrassment. Um, um, still to this day, apologetic. Still to this day, I would do anything to take it back. But you learn in life you don't, you can't move back. You have to move forward. And I've made a lot of mistakes in my life, and I'm sure I'll make a lot more. But that one's right there at the top of regrets and disappointments and and uh, things that I, I wish I could undo, but I can't. And I will say, I learned a lot. Um, I take a lot of pride in how hard I've worked to um, never not put it behind me or, or eliminate it because you never could could do something like that, nor should you, because you should always I believe I should always be some way reminded of the mistakes you make, so you make sure you don't make them again. And I put myself in a terrible position. I, I don't. While the easy reaction is to blame other people, the, the responsibility falls firmly and a hundred percent with me, no matter what other people's roles were with it. But inexcusable. And, you know, a very, very, very tough lesson to learn with a lot of pain to a lot of people. And, um, you know, I'm proud that I've built a career after that. And I've put a lot of work in to to build a career that I'm proud of. But that's a period of my life that I'm ashamed of and embarrassed about and wish I could undo. But unfortunately, I can't. So the only alternative is to move on and make sure that that never happens again and become a better person and as a result. And I, I think I have done that to a certain extent, but you know, I still every day challenge myself to try and be better. And um, like I said, unfortunately, I've made a lot of mistakes in my life and I'm sure I will continue to, but the one thing I think you know me well enough, John, is to know that I'll keep trying to get better. I, I think I told you this at the time too, but I also said this, this is why people build up goodwill. I, I don't think, you know, with, with, without condoning anything, I think there was a sense of, this this is someone who's done right by a lot of people. This is someone who, when he played, was always accessible to the media. This is someone who, you know, 
had a certain amount of uh, accumulated goodwill, and I, I think that that ended up really helping you. I, did anyone sort of did, did you lean on anyone in particular? I mean, you're, you're obviously not the first person to have gone through something like this. I mean, it's this is it, it, whether it's Ryan Williams. I don't know. Was, was there anyone you sort of sought as counsel? How, how am I going to yeah. resume my career? Yeah, yeah, there were. I mean, there's some people that made mistakes. I remember. Um, I remember speaking to Dana Jacobson. I think she had oh, I don't, it's so yeah. long ago, but I believe she had a, a yeah. controversial Notre, turn. Notre Dame career. monologue. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, I spoke to her. Uh, she was very kind. Um, I spoke to a few journalists. I spoke to someone else that um, um, the guy from I think it was to catch a predator. It was was that NBC? What was the host of that show? Walsh. Um, no. No. Anyway, there were, there were some there were some people in the media world that I leaned on. Obviously, I leaned a lot of my friends and family. Um, my girlfriend at the time, um, Alexis, was a women's rights major uh, and a strong women's rights advocate, and she um, was incredibly supportive but held me accountable. Um, I think you know my my dad is. Uh, pretty can be pretty tough on me when it when it warranted and probably sometimes when it doesn't that time it that time it did and he both my parents my brothers my family everyone i mean there were a lot of people that deservedly held me accountable i mean i remember meeting with Jean king and alana Kloss afterward and you know i let a lot of people down and um tried to try to make it as right as possible but said you can never get back to you can never get back after something like that um fully but you have to be held accountable to it and that's part of the process and um you know there were a lot of people the usta i let down i just filmed some or i thought were some really good commercials for the u.s open series um tennis channel i started there and and ken salman and everyone there and remember larry myers our, our old boss who now works with time warner and then bob wiley was there it was just tennis channel stood by me and you know, a lot of people stood by me. The players, I had just gotten elected to the board of directors to represent the players. Um, Roger and Rafa and Novak were all on the council. I mean, I had a lot of people that hung in there with me and were willing to let me buy some time in order to make, make up for it. And I guess that's the thing I'm most appreciative of is that I had the opportunity to make sure that that wasn't the final chapter, but a chapter. And, you know, so some of my good traits could come through um, and not just, some flaws, which no doubt I have. And like I said, I try and minimize the flaws and maximize the strengths. But that was a period where the calibration couldn't have been more off. And um, like I said, it's, it's, I appreciate you saying that there was some goodwill built up, but if there was, I'm well aware that there's, there's no room left, no wiggle room left for mistakes like, uh, like that. I think, I think I wrote this, then we'll move on. But I, but I think I wrote this at the time that in, in, in a weird, unpleasant way, this was sort of tennis at its best. Where this was not the University of Tennessee athletic department uh, buying silence, and this was not a cover-up, and nobody condoned anything. But at the same time, there was this capacity for forgiveness, and you didn't lose these positions. And there was condemnation, but there also wasn't. Let's drum this guy out of the sport. So anyway, I remember speaking. I remember speaking to Serena and Venus. Obviously, I played mixed doubles with, and a lot of the top female players, and asking for their forgiveness, and not trying to explain because you can't explain your way through something like that. I mean, I guess one of my biggest regrets is that um, with everyone that I've made peace with, the one person who I really haven't made peace with is Kornikova. 
and and it has to be for the lack of trying on my end. I mean, I I she just has always seemed unwilling to even engage in the process, which is her right, and she doesn't uh, she doesn't owe me anything. But I mean, I always I immediately apologize. I always was regretful. I tried to apologize to her before numerous times, and you know, if for the lack of another opportunity to do it, I'm more than happy to do it again. I I was. 100% wrong. I was, you know, and I, I apologize for any pain or any ugliness that I caused. So if she hears this, know that it's heartfelt. But that's the one, that is one uh, lingering regret is that of all the people that I've tried to make peace with and, and try to redeem myself to, uh, I haven't quite been able to broker that direct apology. T- time can be an ally. You never know. Um, awkward transition. Yep. Let's. Let's talk about another job you have. Coach. Yeah. yeah. I, I've seen you in action. Tennis, co- <laughs> ten, tennis coach is one of these words I, I always say. There, there, there's a very broad uh, job description that uh, in some cases it's glorified babysitting. That's not what it is with you. I've, I've, seen, your, uh, I've seen your game planning. I've, I've seen your sort of encouragement to, to John Isner. I, I guess, I mean, first I'm going to grill you on why he was in South America, but let's, let's save that. I mean, what, what, what's the goal right now? I mean, re- realistically, what, what's it about for John? He's, he's 30 years old. He's ranked number, I don't know what he is, 11, 12 today. Um, realistically, what's what's this about right now for John Isner? It sounds cliche, but I honestly believe it's about being the best you could be and seeing how good you could be and challenging yourself to see how good you could be. The, the, the problem, the biggest challenge for John is how great everyone is in front of him. I mean... But if you really break it down to a micro level, it's seeing how, how great can John Isner be. I'm still a believer in the fact that he could get way better. And I believe he has become a better tennis player, but I believe he could become a much better one and do better as a result. How high that means or what that means in a tournament or can he beat, can he win a major, can he win a Masters 1000? I, I don't know. Um, but I do know he could get better. And I do know, I do believe I know what he needs to work on. And you know, does he get a little fortunate? Does he stay healthy? Does a draw open up? Does he, you know, does he clutch out on on some break points or some some big moments against great players? I mean, he's beaten almost every top player at one stage. Can he put it all together in two weeks or one week? I, I don't know that answer, but I think that's kind of the exciting part of it. Well, I do believe in his upside. I do believe in his weapons. I do believe in his talent. I think it's underappreciated how incredible of an athlete he is, someone 6'10", almost 7 feet, um, moving with this coordination, with the skills, with the racket skills that he has. I mean, John, you obviously cover every sport. I mean, most sports, you don't have you don't have uh, Allen Iverson trying to guard Shaq or vice versa, you know. And that's, <laughs> yeah, that's, no, that's, no weight but, classes out there. Yeah, I mean, you don't have, you know, Klitschko fighting uh, Pacquiao or Mayweather. I mean, you don't, it just doesn't happen like that. So, the, the challenge is to try and find, you know, the the right combination of skills that could challenge what now seems to be kind of the perfect athlete, which is like, which is Novak Djokovic, who I believe might be the best athlete in the world right now that just happens to play tennis. You believe that? I believe that for sure. To find me an athlete, and, I would, and I'm happy to debate this, find me an athlete that we could put in the same class as Djokovic considering what he does physically, and when I talk about physically, we're talking about endurance, or we're talking about aerobic, anaerobic, fast twitch, endurance, hand-eye coordination, 
they talk about technical, tactical, mental, so individual sport, the changing of conditions, 11 months a year. I mean, I, I would I, I would really love to hear someone make a cogent argument, and I'm sure there's some out there, and you might be able to make say, make an, an argument that there's an athlete comparable, but have someone find make an argument to me, and I'd love to get feedback after this podcast, find an athlete to me that is that you could say is superior to Novak Djokovic right now. I'd like to hear it. I'd like, oh, to, I'd, like to, I'd like to hear it. Justin, take a walk on the dark side with me and check out MMA sometime. All right, discussion for another time. But but you know, no, let, no, let's, that's fine. No, but let's, that's uh, fine. I'm, I'm happy to go down that road and say that maybe that's a possibility, and maybe they're comparable. But I'm not saying they aren't incredible athletes, and those guys aren't specimens. But you know, they. But I'm talking about all the different skill sets that a tennis player has to possess. So I'm not talking. I mean, those are mostly physical. I mean, obviously, there's a mental, huge mental component to fighting, but you're talking about mostly physical and tactical. Oh, I'm talking I don't know about with about tennis. That, Tennis, you're dealing with, I mean, incredibly, incredible technical repetition, muscle memory in all different levels of physicality. You're talking about doing it, you know, a hundred times a year like Djokovic does. I just, I, I'll, I'll tell you what's underrated in tennis, too, that, that we probably don't talk about enough. The, the difference physiologically between an ace and a 30-stroke rally. I mean, you, you don't know what you're getting point to point, right? A b- yeah. boxer gets in there, and they know how long the round is going to last, and they know that there are ways to conserve energy. You don't know the di- I mean, the, the, the body not knowing the difference between what's coming next. Is this going to be a grind-em-out rally, or is this going to be two two strokes and I'm back to uh, to play another point? I, I think the sort of... Uh, I think sort of the functional fitness, right? So, so the fact that it's part part of this is long term endurance and long. You don't know if it's a four hour match or a two hour match, but even think about how different points are even within a single game and what you're asking your body to do. Um, to to me is really remarkable. You know, you know what it's I'm like saying? Pot, it's like a it's like a potluck dinner. Yeah, exactly. But you you don't know if you're going laterally. You don't know if you're if you're going front to back. You you don't know if you're you know going to have backhand to backhand rallies for ten strokes, or you don't know if you're going to get aced. Um, that, that takes a lot of physical agility. Um, anyway, let, let's, you know, it's spend. I, I took that, I took that guessing out of the equation by just assuming that I couldn't last more than five or six shots or more than a couple hours. So I would just, I, I, I took that guess, <laughs> guesswork out of yeah, it. Yeah, but look at, look at, uh, but seriously, look at, look at, look at how John Isner plays points. Yeah. Um, well, you yeah. know what, John, for a while, had the longest rally at the Australian Open. Yeah, exactly. Little... I, I remember, uh, it's, it's worth your, I think he lost the point, by the way, but it was a great, uh, that that was against Granolaires, I think. That was a great point. Deep deep in the uh, Mark, check this. But yeah. deep deep in the third set against Granolaires, on yeah, uh, I, on 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 Hisense, you know, on Vodafone. On Hisense, yeah, there's like a it's, forty-six ball rally, which worth your, uh, is about worth your forty shot forty shots more than his maximum should be. All right, last question. Um, you, you brought it up, so I'm just going to sort of toss. This is going to be your your sitter. This is going to be your sitter. What? What are your thoughts on Djokovic? How, how, how long before this guy gets knocked down from his? I mean, it, it seems to me I'll, he's he's got a thirty-four-year-old Roger Federer. He has Andy Murray, who right now he's kind of cracked his access code. He's got a lot of young talent, but I don't think anyone's ready to take him down. I mean, how long is this guy going to occupy the spot where he is right now? Well, I think the only thing that that people have people should be comfortable with is that Father Time is undefeated. So it'll come at some point, but it doesn't seem like it's coming anytime soon. It seems like the gap is widening. I mean, 
to know that for over a year he hasn't played a tournament that he hasn't at least gotten to the finals of. Um, a time that, of the sport. That's a joke. Is, joke on all different yeah, surfaces yeah. and all different parts of the world. Yeah. Joke. But also, also that we all the so supposed experts have all cited the fact that this is the greatest time in the history of men's tennis in terms of skill and depth and iconic stars at the same time, and yet he's maybe as dominant as anyone has ever been. Um, I'd be surprised if he didn't have a year where he won at least three majors. I think he has a good chance of winning the Golden Rio and winning the French and cementing his legacy and the next two years making a run at, you know, the record books. Uh, I believe that the next 24 months are his uh, unless you know, something happens in terms of his health. Um, because like you said, he, he matches up well against the players at the top and I don't believe the young players are good enough or will be good enough in the foreseeable future, in the, in the, in the immediate future, to dethrone him. So I really believe that there's, there's, there's going to be a period here where he dominates. All right. I think this may be the longest tennis. Jamie, is this correct? I think this may be the longest podcast we've done. And you know what? It didn't seem like it. This was no grind them out uh, five-setter. This, this was very smooth. Well, I take it as a compliment. I um... – I, you know, I enjoy it. I, I love the sport. I mean, that's the thing, John, when people, one of the things I do get defensive about, and it's, there are many, is that one of the challenges, I, I love all the things I do in the sport, John. I, mean, I think you're, you've been around me a bunch. I love coaching. I love the TV. I love representing the players. I love, I love all the stuff I do. I love the sport. I believe in the sport. Um, I hope that comes across and I hope that's taken into consideration as opposed to just saying this guy's just doing a ton of stuff just because I, there's a reason for it. And the reason is I love tennis and I believe in the sport. No, absolutely. but you know, I mean, I think the, the, the flip side of that is like, I, th- I think all of us are like, this is a great, great sport. And it's to, to me anyway, it, it can be frustrating that it can't get out of its way. Um, well, I, feel, but, I, feel, I feel the same way about myself sometimes. <laughs> we all do. <laughs> um, being able to get out of you, my own you, way. Uh, conflicts and all you, you are a force of good. I just want to go on record saying I that. appreciate it. Thank you. Um, Thanks for doing this. We'll see yeah, you in Indian Well, I'm, I'm trying to stay off the road for the next few weeks, but uh, you'll have racked up uh, tens of thousands of miles, I'm sure. But I'll see you, uh, <laughs> see you in three weeks in Indian Wells. I'll see you in the oasis known as Larry Ellison's land. We like it there. Uh, yes, we do. Thanks. That was great. Okay. Thank you, guys. See All you. Right. All right. See you, buddy. All right. That was Justin Gimmelstop. That was our longest ever tennis podcast, was it not, Jamie Lasanti? Yes. It was. Clocking in at right around an hour. We'll be back next week, presumably with a more concise podcast. But Justin was great. We obviously covered a range of issues. His candor is appreciated. One of these guys, and he and I don't always agree, but it's always courteous. It's always respectful. And as he said at the end, this is someone whose passion for tennis is not in dispute. Okay. Thanks, everyone, for listening. As always, recommendations and feedback is welcome. We're going to try and do a few more of these and then hit a bunch of people at Indian Wells. So if you have ideas for guests, feel free to fire away. Thanks for listening. Have a good week, and we'll do it again in seven days.